Beyond the Wrench with Jay Gannon from Find the Wrench. Welcome back to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Gannon and I am your host. Thanks for joining us for yet another week. Before we get started with the podcast, wanted to take a second to announce the winner of our higher or lower game for last week. And the winner was Bryce Zuderveen with a high score of 27. With that, Bryce wins a $100 Amazon gift card brought to us by our sponsor for this week, and that is Caliber Collision. Uh, a great company, was a huge supporter of Tech Mission, and I would encourage you to go check them out and, and uh, see what all they have to offer. As far as the Queen of Hearts pot, Bryce unfortunately did not turn over the Queen of Hearts, and the pot rises yet again to $2,300. If you want a chance at the $2,300 or the $100 Amazon gift card that we give away each week, be sure to head out to the Wrenchway app, complete the challenges, play the games, and win the money. There's a lot of money at stake right now. I hope, hope one of you is able to win it here soon. As far as the Wrenchway app goes, I just want to give you a little bit of information about what it actually is. The app actually helps technicians in the automotive, diesel, and heavy equipment industries by making it easier to search for jobs, highlighting the best shops to work at, and gathering feedback and ideas on how the industry can be improved. And we really do that using the gamification, right? We use it allowing technicians to answer questions that we really want the answers to so that we can turn it into good content such as this podcast. The app is completely free to use and can be downloaded in the App Store or on Google Play. We've also included a link in the show notes with more information. As far as the podcast for this week, we were able to talk with Joel Milne of RepairSmith. Uh, we actually had Joel on probably about a year ago, and he's got some really cool insight and just a, a lot of really general, a good general knowledge about the mobile repair industry. So we talk about some of his business model and really what he sees in the future and a lot of stuff in between. A really, really good episode. And I really, really hope all of you enjoy it and, and have a great week. Talk to you next week. Today, I get to welcome a good industry friend back to the podcast, Joel Milne from Repair Smith is joining me the second time, Joel. I think we we had you on probably almost a year ago to talk about all things uh, Repair Smith and a little bit of your background. So welcome back to the show. I'm really happy to have you back on. Well, thanks for having me back, Jay. So even from our podcast, which didn't seem like that long ago, there's been quite a bit changing with RepairSmith, right? And I think just the evolution of RepairSmith and, and how much you guys have evolved in that short period of time. I know in the first podcast, we talked about how you really got RepairSmith up and running and some of the detail behind that. Talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the, the latest with RepairSmith. What all, what all you guys got going on? Wow, that's a big question, but thanks thanks for having me back again. And you know we've We've made a lot of progress since we last talked. We've probably more than tripled in size. We're now in 15 states and growing. And we started working with a lot more partners. So probably when we talked last, you know, we were just starting to work with fleets and, and really focused on the consumer business. Since then, we've really expanded our fleet offering. So we're working with some of the biggest fleets in the country to you know, a local local fleet with with fifty vans, all the way up to the biggest you know rental car agencies and um, delivery companies and and folks that have pretty heavy usage of their of their fleets. We've also started working with partners, so who may not operate fleets themselves, but work closely with folks who do. So whether it's fleet management companies or people who sell cars and need to offer warranties and top quality service posts, you know, after sale, those type of companies that want to provide their consumer kind of the next level of convenient service. So we've really expanded our partnership footprint quite along with our geographic footprint. Now, is it is it just the automotive sector or are you touching on any of the, the heavy duty or diesel side at all? No, so solely light duty. Solely light duty. And so these the, as the shifts to maybe more of a fleet presence, 
what have you seen in your business? I mean, is it is it uh, easier, harder? Is it just uh, just kind of a different way of doing it? Yeah, it's it's a different way of doing it. Obviously, within the fleet work, maintenance is much more rigorous and scheduled, and you know the the maintenance schedules are much more maintained. And so, we really focus on providing uptime and maintenance first, and repair second in a, in our fleet world, and also certain level of you know quality or you know guarantees on service availability and uptime and other things of that nature. Does that does that help you in terms of just being able to schedule? Like when you know like maybe a repair yeah. you don't know it's going to happen, but maintenance is a little bit easier just because it, it's a little bit easier to kind of draw out the map of how how you're going to allocate time. I mean that's right. It's much more predictable within the fleet world that you know things are scheduled in advance and we know we need to touch this vehicle by this date. And then the repairs come up as they come up. But it allows a predictability and a cadence that we can schedule and keep busy among our fleet customers. That's exciting. I, I think the exciting part of the evolution of your company, kind of just seeing it grow before our eyes. I, I know for you as the the leader of the company, being able to see that thing that you know maybe started off as one thing and really evolving into what it is, which is uh, just a, a really well-run company. I mean, the branding is on point. It looks really, really good. I love everything you guys do from that avenue. And and really revolutioning an industry before our eyes, right? And I think when I say that, that's kind of the, the point of what we're going to touch on today, which is how the evolution of automotive is going, right? And And maybe some of the stuff we're seeing right now, maybe some of the stuff in the future, but I don't think there's any denying that this is changing, right? And and being able to be more mobilized is helping both fleets and consumers. It makes their lives better, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the value proposition amongst all three of the segments that we service is super clear. So we service consumers, we service fleets. And then, you know, to some extent, we also think about the OEMs, the manufacturers, as their own category, right? Because they're selling the car and they need to service the car. And so they're kind of the the you know the first transaction. And I think along all three of those lines, you're seeing everyone say mobile service is a superior offering, but it's hard to deliver and hard to deliver well and and you know hard to do at scale. And right. so there's no there's no one who really thinks that the fixed operation is a better customer experience, right? Whether it's the, you know, the customer or the businesses who operate large fleets, it's can you do it well? Can you do it reliably? Can you do it at the same quality levels in a mobile setting is really the challenge of this industry. And what what have you learned over the course of that time, like really adapting to mobile? I mean, I know that's a really loaded question because I'm guessing you've learned a few things. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the list is endless, right? And we're still learning every day, right? <laughs> you said we're watching the transformation in front of our eyes and it's thinking, you know, we've come a long way from one tech in a rented rider box truck, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, just a little is, bit, yeah. You know, which is just between you and me was where we were three years ago. You know, the learnings are endless, but ultimately a couple of things. One, I think in order to, you know, we found that in order to provide the quality that the upper echelon customer requires, whether it's a top name brand fleet, an OEM, you know, a a, a discerning consumer, in order to offer that level of quality, you need to control, you know, have employee technicians and provide them with the right tools and equipment to do the job, right? So, I think when you're asking people to provide their own vehicle and tools, you can't control quality. When you're looking for gig workers, you can't control quality. And so, you know, there are some circumstances where that can work out. But for for the sec- segment of the business that we're targeting, which is, you know, higher end, high quality, consistent delivery, we found that that's just a, a non-negotiable and doesn't doesn't work if you don't provide the baseline to do a high quality job every day. Right, right. And how walk me through your process of how you take the things you learn and, and then turn them into executable things that you can do, right? And when I say that, I know we've gone through that with our business where you're constantly taking feedback and you're trying to you're trying to deliver the best product that you can to your consumers, right? And 
it sometimes it's really challenging because maybe they need they have a need that is like immediate, but you've got some work to do to get the, to that point, right? And I think yeah. with being you know a fairly young company, there's so much that you can learn, and then being able to I think one that that's actually let me reverse that. It's easier for a young company to do that because you can kind of adapt as you're going, but how hard is it to kind of keep priority on on what changes you need to make as a company or like when you're looking at something and evaluating it you know how do you how do you prior prioritize maybe what that what that looks like well you know it is hard because on one sense we are smaller and can change all the time in another sense when you change quite often people start to say you know these guys don't know what they're doing and yeah. or they don't care or it's just a you know it's chaos over there and you are you know we are doing something new and it's hard and you learn and you make changes as you go and some people don't like constant change right like some we certainly have had employees who come and say you know I just I want it to be A, do A, then B, then C, then D. And that's that's how I want my job set up. And when we change that and say, now you're doing A, then C, then then F, they some some take it really well. Like you're yo, you're hearing my feedback and you're innovating and you're improving the software, you're improving the the this policy was dumb or whatever it is. And others say, well, it's changing all the time. I just want a place that I can just, you know, that's been around for 50 years and does things the same way every day. So it's a delicate balance. Like we have ideas all the time that we think would make things better, but then we say, whoa, you know, there's hundreds of people out in the field working every day who this will affect. And we need to be really cautious with change management. And we've actually invested a lot recently. One of our big learnings was you can't just change things all the time once you get to a certain size, right? And you have to communicate better and you have to have training better to roll out changes so that it's not, you know, the guys in Arizona are doing it one way and the folks in Portland are doing it another way, right? And so it's been a challenge at scale. And, you know, we're, we're not at full national coverage yet, but we're not small either, right? right. So I think prioritizing becomes a tricky exercise, as you said, because it's, uh, you know, what's the benefit of this change, but also what's the cost in terms of, you know, people's ability to, you know, roll it out and train it. And how long since we told them to do it this way that now we're telling them to do it the other way. Right. And so I think in a software only world, it's a lot easier to do AB testing and change, right? We, on our website, we do AB testing all the time and that's sure. actually pretty easy, but doing AB testing with field operations or, or in a live environment, it's much more challenging and you have to be you can't be rigid and, and just say, this is the way it is. We're never going to change. But you also just can't be chaotic and change all the time. So we try to strike a balance, but we're not perfect. Yet. Which I think is a it's an exciting thing for a technician or from a technician standpoint, though, right, is that you almost go into it with that tech company type of mindset because you are a tech company, even though some of, you know, a lot of the skills that you're using maybe in a traditional fashion are being translated to work for a tech company. It, it, it's there's a there's a different balance, but I think that creates some type of excitement where you might get some benefits in doing that that you wouldn't get in maybe a regular nine to five or, you know, in a, in a regular shop setting. So uh, talk to me through that mindset of a technician, because I think that that's really important to clarify for that technician that's out there listening of, OK, what you know, talking change and everything like that there's some real excitement behind that because it creates different types of opportunities. Yeah. Look, I mean, we're building something new, right? And so with that, you never get it right on the first go and and you're always adding to it. And so I think for the folks who like to use the tools, you know, the, the, the digital tools and like to have input, you know, we, we listen to all the feedback and, and we know it's not always perfect, but we care. And so if for the folks who like to have input and, and and be a part of that journey, then I think it's a great environment, right? It, it allows them to shape the future of the industry. I think if folks just want it to be perfect and baked, then it could be frustrating, right? And, and, and we don't want anyone to be frustrated by it. So we try to set the expectation that, you know, we're doing something new and hard here and we're not, you know, I don't want to throw out a company name, but you know, some, somebody who's been making cars for a hundred years or whatever it is. Right. Like, and so 
the good news is the customers love what we're doing, right? And and the techs are great with the customers. And we're trying to figure out all the hard stuff in between that to get them matched up at the right price at the right time with the right parts. And that's, I mean, you think about that. That's a dynamic personality or a dynamic person that you're sending out in one of those vans, right? Because they have to be adaptable. They have to have a good personality or at least be able to have conversations with customers in a professional manner. They have to represent themselves professionally because they are truly customer facing. It's not like you're hiding behind a wall anymore. You're, you're directly right there. So, I mean, the, the, the unique skill set needed to be a technician for RepairSmith is different than maybe something else. And maybe walk me through the selection process. When you're looking at a technician, what are you looking for? Because I do feel like that's that's a lot of unique skills wrapped up into one person. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think fundamentally the RepairSmith technician gets to be the hero to the customer, right? Like you get to talk to them, you get to advise them, here's what I think you should do and I'm going to make it better for you. And But it is customer facing. There's no service advisor in between you and the customer. And I think for about half technicians, that's really liberating. And I think for half, maybe it's, that's not where I want to, I want to, I don't want to be customer facing. Like I, I think the simplest analogy I think of is, is plumbers, right? Like, There are certain plumbers who go to people's houses every day and deal with customers and say, here's what your issue is. Here's what it's going to take to fix. Here's what it's going to cost. Like, want me to go ahead and and get to solve that problem for the customer and walk away. You know, you saved me. Like, my my house isn't flooding anymore. (laughs) And then there's a certain segment of plumbers who want to work on an industrial, you know, skyscraper for as a subcontractor and never deal with a stupid customer. Right. And like, that's just (laughs) a personality type. And I get it. Right. Like, it's it. It and, and it's no different. I mean, it's no different in our industry. I think there are, you know, it's not one size fits all. Some people like just, you know, being super technical and not dealing with people. And some people are people people. And so we try to look for those people people who also just want to, you know, interact and have direct customer access. Do they get a little bit more of that barrier, if you will, with the fleet side? Like, do, is it kind of a different technician yeah. between the fleet side and the consumer side? Absolutely. So I should clarify, certainly we have those opportunities for, you know, going in and spending all day or all night in some cases, depending on the, on the, on the shift with a fleet customer, just, you know, vehicle after vehicle and being that more B2B industrial setting. So we offer that, but when I think of the, the consumer technician, which is still the bulk of our workforce, it really does, you know, hinge on those wanting to be customer facing. How do you, let's let's talk more maybe about the future of the industry and I think what you have done with RepairSmith is so progressive and and very forward thinking in an industry that just seems to be moving at the speed of light right we we see the electrification coming it's here how how does that impact your business as you move forward you know the electrification of fleets or consumer vehicles well you know, it's a great question. And and there's two separate answers for fleet versus consumer, right? On the consumer side, realistically, like if we think about consumer, we think about out of warranty vehicles, right? In our, in our world. So that's the five to 20 year old segment. And the current penetration of EVs in the five to 20 year old segment is zero, right? Yeah. Because, you know, five years ago, they were under 1% of new sales. So if you take the entire 15 year population and, you know, it's probably less than 0.1%, right? And maybe only in California or a couple of places. And the problem yeah. is those those Gen 1 vehicles didn't outlast their initial run, right? Like the, the, at five years, they're pretty much sold for scrap or collector's items or something because no one wants an 80-mile Fiat 500E, e, you know, with, all, <laughs> with no range and a, a battery about to die, right? And so, you know, maybe some of the old Leafs are still around and stuff, but they, they just don't, you know, they don't make it past that, that no one's going to replace the battery on those old ones, right? So it's still a coming thing on the on the pure consumer side. We just don't see them, right? Outside of like Teslas, you don't see them lasting that long. So we're preparing for it, but I think we're going to be one of the most well-prepared companies in the industry, much more so than any individual player would be or small, small location because of what we're doing on the other side of the business, which is the B2B and the, and the OEM services. Probably, I think the most interesting trend that comes with EVs is 
there's a lot of direct consumer EVs, which means they don't have dealerships, which means they don't have their own service operations, which means they need help in order to sell cars. They need to partner with somebody for service operations. And so I think what we're going to be seeing a lot of is companies like RepairSmith being the first line of warranty service, the new generation of, of OEMs you know, that, that are launching vehicles without EVs. Obviously, Tesla built their own network out from the ground up and hired you know, thousands of technicians. Maybe one other company is probably going to be able to pull that off because they're, they've raised so much capital. But most of them, I think, will be in a partnership mode on warranty service. So we'll be able to touch those cars certain EVs in that first five-year segment. And that really allows us to work with the manufacturer for training and for you know that, that first pass warranty, which will then, when they move into the used B2C segment, we'll have already been working with those OEMs directly you know, in the early days. We're also seeing that traditional OEMs are all thinking about how to provide mobile service and should we do it in a partnership model or let dealers handle it on their own. And so I think more and more we see these opportunities within the OEM world, which really can help our technicians work at the, you know, at the cutting edge of technology without having to be a dealer tech in one specific brand. Wow. I mean, that's that OE part of this is such a variable, right? Like that, that is how they deal with their customers is is changing fast and like you said even from the dealership world it's changing for them it's changing for somebody like you to be able to have that and i think that's where you guys have come along at such a good time because if maybe this is uh 10 15 years ago it might be a different business right yeah i, th- I think certainly 10 or 15 years ago you're going to be much more of an outlier and and the old way of doing things prevails but I think when you see Tesla and Rivian offering mobile services as premium brands and customers just in the world generally wanting more things convenient, you know, disclosing anything like if I were an OEM, I would be thinking about how do I compete with that and how do I offer the top level of service to my customers, especially if you're in the luxury segment, right? And eventually everything that's in the luxury segment, we know trickles down to, you know, the the mid-tier and the mass market segment, right? We all have power windows now. And so over time, I think it will be, you know, what what starts in the the you know the premium segment will become the norm and the expectation across all segments. Yeah. And I think the nice part about that is it's not so price sensitive, right? Like if you're if you're dealing with an upper tier type of car, they're probably used to maybe more expensive repairs and and maybe paying for that travel time or doing something that is out of the norm for them isn't isn't quite as earth-shattering as if you're just a random Joe with a Civic, right? Like it's it's it it is a little different precedent. Yeah. And so, you know, we're certainly seeing that within the luxury segment that that's more and more becoming the expectation. Do you see a shift? When, when it does become more of that side from general maintenance to more of a repair model? Or like, you know, when when you talk about an electric car, obviously they don't have an internal combustion engine where you're not changing yeah. oil. Does that shift your model at all in terms of how how you're interacting with the customer, the types of repairs that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, certainly does, right? A bunch of things will change with those types of vehicles, right? The price point of repairs is going to go way up, right? Because, yeah. you know, you 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 kick a corner on it and there's five sensors. And so <laughs> there's a lot more electronics. But at the same time, you know, you're not changing the oil. And so you're still going to have brakes and tires and wearables and such. But you're also dealing with first generation vehicles, and which probably have a higher incident of, you know, repair needs. And you're also talking about a more limited supply chain, right? So the supply chain is so mature among your mass market vehicles that the price point for parts is super competitive, right? Whereas you're having all these new vehicle launches, they don't have a massive supply chain. So you're going to see higher parts prices. You're going to see more expensive repairs of all the components and the sophistication necessary, but the frequency is probably going to be going down. And so I think we as RepairSmith think about being really well positioned to be one of the winners of that, you know, reconstruction rather than, you know, on the on the losing side of that. And I think we do that by being 
early in the game and getting the training and the expertise early. I love it. I, I think that's so important. And and I think this opens us up to a different type of person coming into the industry too. And when I say that, you know, I think most techs don't love doing oil changes or they don't, you know, love doing tire rotations. The tire rotation probably still going to be a thing for quite a while or, or changing yeah. tires. I know Elon Musk was working on a tire that went forever or something like that, but in the foreseeable future, that's not happening. So I think that you know that that technician that is currently working and loves the electric the electrical side or the diagnostic piece is really going to thrive in this environment and and really i think that almost shifts the perception you know we've tried for so long to get away from the grease monkey mentality or or really being viewed as as different than what the the past perception has been I think this opens the door wide open for that and makes it a really exciting time to come in as a technician. And I'm curious to see if if you kind of see the same. I do. I mean, obviously, the next five years are going to see big changes, right? And so it's going to be an interesting straddling period, though, right now, because obviously the bulk of the vehicle population is, you know, 99% plus of the used population, more than that, is still, you know, ICE engines. So, but over time, it will be much more electrified. And, you know, I think we all see the writing on the wall on that. Every single OEM has accelerated their their 100% electric deadline or, or target or, you know, we, we and from two years ago, right? I mean, you know, go back to 2020 yeah. and, you know, the date might have, you know, been 10 years further into the future. And now, you know, the, the production lines are being changed. And so, that's going to affect the people who work downstream. Now it's going to be a five-year lag or a ten, even you know, up to a ten-year lag. And so, how do we live in both worlds during this this transition period, which is kind of where we are? But we are seeing, you know, we think the value of the diag and the the diagnostic technician is going up and up, and and we'll start to be more reflected in our pricing, frankly, because the diagnostics start to become more difficult. And, you know, this is kind of, there's, there's this whole debate in our industry about free diagnosis and what, what, what should be free and what should not. And I don't even want to go down that whole rabbit hole, but, <laughs> you know, when somebody spends an hour of their time, who's a highly trained, qualified technician trying to figure something out, that's valuable. And, and that's going to be more and more the case as on these EV vehicles, especially first generation vehicles versus, you know, the, the, as you said, I, I don't use that term, but the green, you know, the banging, banging it with a wrench, right? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not the case anymore. Yeah. And I, I think you hit on an interesting point there too, because this has to impact our labor rates, right. And, and what we're charging customers. I tell people in our office, watch for a unexpected, right. Amongst consumers, unexpected, rise in what we're charging for labor, regardless of type of shop or type of repair person that's going to fix your car, because it has to, it just, it, the tools are going to become more expensive. The people are going to become more expensive in terms of, in terms of salaries commanded with, as it should be. But I think the public still might not know that yet. And this is where I think we as an industry can do a much better job at getting out in front of this and saying, hey, listen, this, is, this isn't getting better in terms of uh, the ability to find people and the tools are getting more sophisticated. Uh, I feel like we could really right now get out in front of this and say, hey, listen, this is, this is going to happen. It's, the, the, the amount of money that you're going to pay to get your car worked on is going to increase in probably not such a subtle fashion. Yeah, I mean, feel free to start spreading the word, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. It, it is it is something, though, where I think right now everybody in the industry really needs to buy into that piece of of and, and become comfortable with it, right? Because I think yeah. so for so long we were trying to get to be the, the bottom price in town, and that's not everybody, but I think there were a lot of shops that were doing it that way. And that's hurt us in, in, from from the standpoint of getting to where we need to be at in terms of what we charge. And so I, I, th I do think that's something that we're really going to have to watch out for. Now, 
the other side of that in, in bringing up technicians, maybe that 10 year old that's sitting out there right now that we're going to really be targeting in 10 to 15 years. What does that kid look like? I mean, is it, is it that kid that likes to code right now? Is it the kid that likes to play video games? Is it maybe more of the traditional person that just likes to tinker? What do you think that next generation of technician is going to look like? Wow. Uh, well, for all the 10 year olds listening, no, I, I think it's, it's certainly the kid who likes to tinker and, and the kid who, you know, all the attributes I think of when I think about engineering, but who don't want to work in an office setting. And so I think of young engineers as being problem solvers and, you know, whether you like electronics or mechanical or, you know, um, what are the other, you know, <laughs> physics, right. no. but you know, all those aspects of engineering, mathematics, right. Electrical versus, you know, programming, any of those fields are applicable, but you may not want to go work in a cubicle somewhere, drawing up engineering plans and designing parts or designing bridges or designing hardware. And you may like a personality who wants to be outdoors and customer facing or more local and, you know, maybe, I think a lot of engineering opportunities are in urban settings. And, and so I think the skill set or the underlying personality is very similar. I think it's just what you want out of life and how, you know, your, your priorities are that, that dictates this being a great field to go into. Yeah. And I, I think tinkering the, the, the definition of tinkering has changed, right? It's not necessarily yeah. tearing apart a lawnmower and putting it back together. It might be, getting on your computer and tinkering with with a line of code or doing something that's different than what I grew up thinking tinkering was? Well, let, let me put it this way. I think if the 10-year-old hates writing a line of code or, you know, the computer programming class they take in high school, I don't think it's going to be a great career for them. You know, where I wouldn't say that today, right? That's not, right. absolutely not the case today. But at some point when the world is 100% EV, you know, if you hate that aspect of it, then you're going to be relegated to a very small subset of systems that fit your... That kind of, as I'm visualizing this, it, it leads me down the, the path of a, of a technician's career. And maybe when I look at that, say if you did it by 10 years, uh, if you did 25, 35, 45, maybe even 55-year-old person that's really dug into ice right now they they understand internal combustion engines they understand what this is what do you think what type of advice would you have for that person that's you know probably going to go through a pretty big evolution in the next 10 years well look i think i think really for the let's be realistic for the next 50 years 30 to 50 years there's going to be a home for everyone right yeah. you know they're not going to stop selling the vehicles right now it's a hundred percent of the used population and yeah. there's still what 90 over 95 percent of new car sales certainly right so you know and those cars that are being sold today are 20 plus years of being of repair needs right so you're fine for 20 30 years okay and then look if you really want to be committed to it then <laughs> just just go to anywhere in the world that's not the u.s or or uh, europe or and and you still have ice vehicles for the next forever you know, i was I was I was in South America last week for Thanksgiving and I couldn't find a single automatic transmission, right? Like every even the like the the I was in a Sprinter van, manual, right? I was in and like every vehicle I was in was a manual transmission, right? And so, you know, you can't buy those here, but they still exist in certain parts of the world because of affordability reasons, infrastructure reasons, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, ultimately the world is going to have gas cars for a long time. But if you think about like Certainly, major metros in the U.S. will be transitioning over the next decade pretty aggressively. The price points are coming down. And so, you know, I think you could be an EV-only tech. Well, you could be an EV-only tech today if you got that OEM job, right? That's it. Like, there's no EV-only tech in the independent world. Like, it doesn't, you know, there might be a specialty shop here, too, that does conversions or something. But pretty much, if you want to be an EV tech, you're working for Tesla, you're working for Rivian right? Or one of these companies. Uh, there'll be more and more of those as they go. But if you want to be working in an independent world where you see multiple EV brands and not just one, 
I think that's probably five years out, right? It's within this next 10 year block, we'll start to see those trickle into the into our world, kind of the top tier. And then I think at the, you know, at the local shop in about 10, 10 to 20 years times out, you're going to need that skill set because there'll be enough of them around that you can't just ignore it anymore, if that makes sense. It does. And I think what I'm gathering from that is for those technicians that are out there listening to this, don't freak out, right? It's not going yeah. to happen overnight. There's not just going to be the ferry that comes and takes all of our internal combustion engines and, and gets rid of them. There's a lot of job security now in, in what you're working on. I think the one thing that I would say is just get proactive with your learning right now, because even a, you know, I bought a new F-150 with a, that's a hybrid. That's that's changed, right? It's different than what my 2013 F-150 was. And and there's just, I think as much as we all push that, okay, this big wave of change is coming with the EVs, the there's still a, an evolution. It's not just going to go from one directly to the next, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to think about, you know, this, this different this this difference between an OEM dealer tech and the independent tech world. The independent tech world is still ten years away from seeing any meaningful number of cars coming into the workshop that are EVs, right? And and even then, it's that's in California and you know New York, a couple of places, right? Uh, that have big incentives for that have promoted EVs. So it's kind of a nice time where you can. You can live in either world pretty comfortably, I think, for the next 10 to 20 years. But after that, I think it's going to be harder almost, you know, in 20 years time, it's going to be pretty mandatory. So that's why I think of the 10 year old now who's going to when they're 30, you know, that's going to be if you don't have that skill set, you're going to be going into the probably the the least desirable segment of the industry that that doesn't have that skill set. You're going to be pushed into the kind of the lower end opportunities. That's interesting. When you're looking at your technicians that it, that you currently have, is that something you talk about with them, or is it just kind of a hey, you know, we we know it's coming, or is it like how how does the communication strategy work in, in terms of everything that you just told me? I think is really good information in terms of the breakdown of EV population versus ICE population, and you know trying to, to maybe calm down any anxiety around that, that drastic change? You know, it's something that we probably need to be better on, on the communication. So thanks for reminding me, but you know, <laughs> we, you know, it's what I hope to do is bring them great opportunities to the table that allow them to self-select in. And we're working on those. They're actually really close. Right. And so pretty soon we're going to have, you know, there's, there's two ice vehicles that were, that were, thinking about being able to provide services for that allow our techs to select into those and you know outside of our just a normal consumer work and so what i'm trying to do is bring you know it's not a you 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 need to worry that you're like i said there's 20 years of 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 in, runway here in, our, yeah. <laughs> in, in the used car world there's 20 ways of run there's 20 years of runway okay so i don't think anyone should be worried about it today but I think that what my job is, is to bring these opportunities to learn and be at the front of the industry to our company, right? So I can say, hey, we're going to be servicing these vehicles and who wants to get trained on these by the OEM and be part of this program. And so I'm trying to bring those opportunities in. And, you know, I don't like talking speculatively until we have something. So I don't want to, you know, overpromise and underdeliver. But we certainly will have those opportunities. It's a matter of which ones and when, because sure. they're they're coming. There, you know, there's there's going to be so much product, right? If you think about, you know, the publicly stated product pipeline coming in two years, let's say, it's humongous. And now, like, add another year or two for them to actually move meaningful numbers out into the population. But you know, I'm sure if I asked, you could probably tell me five EV launches in the next two years that don't exist today, right? And yeah. so there's probably 10 if I, without even trying, I could probably think of 10. So, yeah. you know, that's where things will start getting interesting is a couple of years after that. 
Yeah, you start throwing Apple and Google and all of these others that oh, wow. are like. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even include the fairy tale one. Right? The, 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 the Sony car from the, you know, I don't know if you saw that one. Uh, yeah. That they built at the, at the car show. I mean, yeah. you know, it looked beautiful. And who knew Sony was, or the Dyson, you know, the, the over in the UK. <laughs> yeah, he folded that up though, didn't he? That's, I know, uh, they, that's... They're, they're all, all fairy tale cars, but, but. I'm not even including the fair fairy tale cars, right? Yeah, yeah, it, but I think if nothing else, it helps you expand your mind to who's working on this stuff. You know, they're all they've all got some interest in it, and even you know some of them that have come up fast that were startups. I mean, their their evolution, Rivian's changed drastically in in the last year. <laughs> you know, I think it just yeah. it it's uh, just like anything, just like we talked about with our businesses, just an ever ever going evolution. Yeah, but in in all seriousness, I think a lot more important than the Dysons and the Sonys and the and the you know you never discount Apple and Google, but is you know the OEMs have completely changed their level of investment and seriousness over the last couple of years, and you're going to start to see, you know, we've seen a ton of concept Gen One, you know, learning vehicles, but you're going to start to see a ton of really high quality mass market vehicles coming out of the traditional OEMs, it's going to really be much more of a game changer than the next new EV company. I agree. And I think I think it not only forces them to look at the technology that they're putting out in current vehicles, but it makes them look at how they service them, how they, you know, how they do everything else. That's where your company has really kind of fit right into that fold because when they're starting to look at this one big thing, okay, we're how we deliver a new car and, you know, maybe Carvana has shifted a, a manufacturer's thinking on how they're doing it at the dealer level, right? Like then it starts to go to the part side and then the service side. And, and really, I think it makes them look at their operations as a whole in something that really hadn't been changed in the 50 years prior to that. That's right. I mean, certainly, the pandemic played an aspect of that, but it, it was did. also, you know, Carvana was selling a lot of cars before the pandemic, right? We were repairing a lot of cars before the pandemic. And now, you know, everyone loves delivery and convenience. And so I think there's not many business models that 50 years long don't have to be looked at and tweaked in today's environment, right? And so I certainly would be worried that you know look look at movie theaters right like two years ago i mean they were going through change and you know seats were declining you know a number of, of screens and seats were declining but like all of a sudden they're gone right and so in like a year and that was a business model how old how old a business model is movie theaters right <laughs> For, yeah from forever ago whatever picture the, yeah yeah right and so I think that, you know, certainly folks need to be forward thinking and preparing for these drastic changes that, that, you know, we see around us, we've seen in lots of industries and, you know, we hope won't come that drastically to automotive, but that, that I think all the major players are, are thinking about, you know, the vehicles, they're thinking about the service, they're thinking about the distribution model, like all these things are on the table right now. And, I like to think that we're part of the forefront of that and offer technicians the ability to be part of that forefront, you know, in a, as we said earlier, a quickly changing customer facing world. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. How do, when we look at, and we've got about 10 minutes left, when we look at uh, the technician's role, one of the funny things that I've learned through, through the pandemic is Technicians do crave some level of flexibility, right? And and I think with with you and your unique model, that might have more opportunity for flexibility down the road. Do you see that, or is it is it something where okay, we're probably still going to be you know that eight to five or whatever it is type of job? Do you see different levels of flexibility in scheduling? Well, scheduling flexibility. I mean, we have flexibility in many ways. I don't think scheduling flexibility is probably not one of our selling points different than sure. a shop. Like not, I don't think it's worse, but I don't think it's better because, you know, it's 
when we have a customer and we've assigned it to that one van, if that tech doesn't show up to work, then the customer is probably going to get rescheduled and no-showed on, right? So for us, being able to show up when we say we are is actually a really critical element. Whereas in a shop, if you don't show up to work, somebody else, you know, they're still customer can still leave their car there and somebody else can pick it up when when they need to. So I think scheduling is probably, you know, reliability of scheduling is probably you know more important for us than at a shop. Now we offer flexibility in a lot of other ways that a shop doesn't, you know, certainly the ability to go out and recommend to the customer. Like, if, you know, I, I've talked to lots of technicians who feel that the service advisors don't, you know, are have incentive are incentivized in a way that, you know, they may oversell some of their recommendations or misinterpret, you know, misrepresent some of their representations and feel frustrated by that friction in between the customer and them. And so, the ability to directly communicate and make recommendations and say, oh, you know, you don't need this now, or you, you know, hey, you, you really should get this now. I think that's the more liberating part of the experience. But, you know, when you're, when, when, when a customer wants you to show up at their house, if you no show, that's a problem. Yeah. And I think that that is one of the most common concerns I hear from a flat rate technician, right? Is that they're, they're dependent on having a good service advisor or they're dependent on having somebody that can sell service and do it in a ethical way. And they don't always know what that exchange is up front. So maybe they don't trust what they're doing as much. And being able to talk directly to a customer, I can certainly see the benefit of knowing what you said, knowing what you said was wrong and being able to actually hear what the customer is saying is wrong, you know, right? Because it's not so often they have to go off a, an RO and the RO might not be all that well written out and that yeah. can cause a lot of frustration. Yeah, absolutely. We hear that all the time. So anything additional in terms of what you what you think might change for a technician moving forward. I know we, we focused a lot on EV and the evolution of the car in general, but you've been at the forefront of this and, and really, really progressing maybe the way we look at a technician and, and the quality of person that you've got out there. Do you see anything in the future that might be different than what it is right now? Well, you know, I mean, obviously, the number one thing I see in the future that's different now from on the consumer side of the business is the mobile versus fixed operations. That's why I'm doing this, right? That's why I spend every day working on on bringing that because I I just, you know, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle once it's out, right? And, And like I said, you've seen the top tier luxury brands starting to offer it. You've seen it in all other industries. And, you know, I kind of think of it like, I don't know if you know the story of, of Pizza Hut and Domino's, right? Where, you know, back in the 70s, maybe early 80s, probably late 70s, you know, Pizza Hut dominated. It was an in, in-store in dining experience. You drove to the Pizza Hut and got you sat down with your family and ate your pizza. And they were the 100-pound gorilla. And there was this little company called Domino's that came along and built mobile first pizza, right? And they were nothing, like, you know, in, in size or scope or or anything. But if you think now of consumer behavior on pizza, you know, when was the last time you took your family to a sit down pizza experience? It's been a while. You're right. And so consumer expect Domino's changed. The, Domino's is now bigger than Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut has been closing restaurants for 30 years now. Every year they announce a new 500 restaurants that are shutting this year or hundred or whatever the number is and, or switching to a fast format, right? Like switching to a mobile only format from their previous, you know, big retail format. And I really see it playing out the same way, right? Like there's, there's pizza huts on it, uh, you know, all over the country right now serving car repair. And, you know, eventually consumers will say, you know, I prefer to watch the football game on Sunday and, you know, sit at home and have my car repaired. And so I, I think, you know, that's an inevitability how, how, how quickly it happens. Now, I think there's certainly gonna forever be opportunities for fixed operations, whether it's on the fleet services side. Even in our setting, we can't do 100% of jobs. I think it's gonna, you know, be 10% of the business and 90% will be in the field. But so th- there's certainly opportunities if you don't like that, if you don't like that uh, concept, 
there's going to be other ways to get at it. But I think that'll be the biggest shift. So if you like that concept, you know, being part of shaping that and being part of the future, I think is a great time to do it now. I love the pizza analogy. Do you think there's any other industries that are going like maybe currently going through the transition uh, to a similar like uh, traditionally in-store, obviously Amazon has changed the game on a lot of that stuff where I went into a shopping mall probably a month ago and I hadn't been to one in, I don't know how many years prior to that. And what was something where you would go once a month or once every other month or once a quarter, whatever, before has transitioned to rarely going and same thing, right? You're seeing malls shut down. Yeah. And, 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 changing their formats and collaborating with tech companies who are website first, but you can go in and try things on. They've had to reinvent themselves, these malls. And look, if you step back, try to think, I do this all the time, try to think of a retail sector that is less touched by technology than automotive, right? So if you think of like gas, auto sales and auto after sales, right? Repair, you know, are probably the last big, huge industries that are pretty untouched. You've got a couple of folks trying the at-home mobile gas delivery. That's a hard one because, you know, the average, t- you know, their margins on gas are like this big yeah, and the average tiny. ticket price is, you know, 50 bucks, right? So that's a hard business. I think the consumer demand is there, but it's just hard to make it economically work. We've already seen car sales being attacked now with the Carvana's, Vrooms, Kavak, Car. Kazoo, you know, like the list yeah, is on. Yeah. There's one in Canada, there's one in UK, there's one in Mexico. There's like three in the US or four, in, you know, maybe five in the US, right? So like that's happening and then repair, right? And and we're working on that. So I can't like just drive around town and as you pass stores, think like, okay, restaurant, I can get at home delivery, right? Dry cleaner, I can do that digitally. You know, grocery, oh, I can get that digitally. You know, theater, well, I watch Netflix. Like, I can't, I drive around and I look at stores all the time and I can't think of anything that's bigger than car repair that's untouched like car repair is. That's interesting. Now, now you're going to change my drives a little bit. I'll be thinking things a little bit differently, but I, as always, it's, it's a, it's a pleasure to sit down and pick your brain for an hour. And, and I've enjoyed our conversation. I think hearing your thoughts on the future of the industry and even like the the little thing at the end, right? The Domino's Pizza Hut thing. I hadn't thought about that in forever, but I think it's very, very valuable to, to hear those stories and hear the the evolution of the industry because you're doing it. You're you're in it right now. You're boots on the ground getting this this thing up and going and, and not only up and going, being very successful with it. You guys have have really shown a lot of others how to do it, right? Like you guys are doing it the right way. You're doing a lot of really, really good things. So I appreciate you being on the show yet again. Hopefully we'll get you back on again to to talk about when the next time you triple in size. All right. Will do. Always fun, Jay. All right. Take care. Thanks.